This is the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bone Beat Orthopedic Podcast channel. We cover health policy issues impacting musculoskeletal care, as well as how our orthopedic surgeon listeners can become advocates for our patients in the profession. I'm your host, Adam Brueggemann, chair of the AAOS Advocacy Council. As we wrap up another year of advocacy and look towards what we want to accomplish in the new year, we wanted to get a resident's perspective on the challenges facing our profession and our patients. Here to share his point of view is Dr. Kevin Wise from Beaumont Health. Kevin is uniquely positioned to speak on this topic, given his leadership positions on both the Health Policy Committee of the AAOS Resident Assembly and the AAOS Political Action Committee. Thank you for joining us today, Kevin. Thank you for having me, Dr. Bergman. You're welcome. So before we get into the issues themselves, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about the how and why that you got involved in advocacy. Usually we're seeing that surgeons either don't know how to get involved or just don't really see the reason to get involved. So I'd love to hear from your perspective as a resident, someone who's entering the orthopedic profession, why'd you do it? And then how did you get involved? Yeah, thank you. So when I was a junior resident, I started going to more conferences and trying to not only improve my clinical skills, but things outside of the clinic and operating room. I heard a lot of talk about advocacy at these meetings, pursuing a career in arthroplasty. And I think a lot of the arthroplasty surgeons are very in touch with this as we're affected a lot. And I felt like it was something I didn't know a ton about. So I really wanted to explore it myself. So I started online, just doing some reading. There's a great advocacy page for the OrthoPAC on the AOS website that I used. Some of the AOS staff, then I made a donation to the PAC, were able to put me in contact with Sarah Nelson, my predecessor in this position. She did a great job when I attended NOLC for the first time last year, helping me meet other residents who are interested. And I really think that going to NOLC for the first time was a really a jumpstart in seeing not only the issues and jumping into it further, but really how things get done on the Hill. And it was a pretty exciting experience. I think that's wonderful. What do you think as a resident going into the profession of orthopedics, what are your thoughts about where things are headed and how or why other residents or even practicing surgeons who may be decades ahead of you in practice, why should they be interested or be involved in advocacy? One quote that really stands out to me, and I think other people have said better than I can, is if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And it really speaks to our own autonomy in the way that we want to practice orthopedics and just medicine in general. I think that the foremost concern for all of us is improving our own clinical and operative abilities in treating our patients. And oftentimes that takes up the majority of our time and we feel as though we don't have other time with family obligations and maybe research that we don't have time to do this. But if we aren't making these decisions, it's going to be someone who didn't train in orthopedics, doesn't know what's critical to running a practice, doesn't see the delays prior authorization can make in patients who really need the proper treatment. So I think it's crucial to have some real champions that are able to tie both of those together for the whole field. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. I think the more that we can get people involved, the better it is. It's one of those that the work that everyone does that participates in the advocacy efforts helps everyone. So no matter how many of us do it, everyone gets benefit. But the more of us that get involved, the bigger the impact we have, whether that's 
participating with our time or our efforts or attending local events, all of those are critical and important. Let's talk about some of the key issues that we face within orthopedics. And I'd love to hear as someone who is getting ready to start their practice, what are some of the top issues that you see? And maybe we can dive into a few of those and talk about them. Yeah, absolutely. The things that I have seen personally, and I'm glad that they mirror what I've seen emphasized at a number of our meetings. And again, NOLC would first be prior authorization, number one, and number two would be physician reimbursement. And you can lump that with Medicare. And three, something unfortunately has been increasing in recent years, I think, is physician safety in the workplace. And that extends, I shouldn't say physician, I'd say all healthcare workers and our safety in the workplace, unfortunately. Maybe we start with the first one you mentioned. So prior authorization. I know that's a topic for many aspects of medicine, not just orthopedics. Our primary care colleagues are having to deal with prior authorization for medications that maybe that's not something we deal with as much on a daily basis. But for orthopedic surgeons, that really revolves around dealing with surgeries, MRIs, physical therapy, sometimes even office visits. Can you talk a little bit about what you see going on with prior authorization and why you think it needs reform? Yeah. I think from the resident perspective, what we see the most and I have seen is delay in care for patients who need it most. Unfortunately, going to a lot of these meetings and talking to attendings who see these patients on a continued basis for months and months, I think, and from the kind of the financial side, is you see that it also puts a burden on your practice. And that's something I think most residents can't really appreciate because we aren't running practices. We're just seeing that these prior authorizations, you have a patient on the schedule, it's denied, they require prior authorization, they get pushed online and this person's suffering for something that ultimately gets approved anyway. So it's really just delaying their care. What I was unaware of is sometimes you need for a practice, a multiple full-time employees to push through these prior authorizations for physicians who are already getting reimbursed a fraction of what we were prior. Do you have any examples, anything that you can think of in the time that you've been, your five years of training, I recognize you're not in active practice where you would be running your own practice to deal with this, but can you think of any examples, specific examples of patient care where care was either delayed unnecessarily or for an extended period of time, somebody didn't get the treatment that they needed that you've seen just in your residency training before even starting in practice? Yeah, absolutely. I think the classic that I have seen, unfortunately, going into arthroplasty is the patient who comes in with absolutely no joint space, whether it's in their hip or their knee, and we give them the option for arthroplasty. They've exhausted what we feel like are reasonable conservative measures. However, whether it's documentation of certain amount of physical therapy or something else that we know is not going to be a fruitful effort anyway, we're causing these patients to jump through these hoops that isn't really improving their care and maybe is even increasing costs in the long term, which is really unfortunate. I think the other thing that's not discussed a lot, and I've seen this a couple of times, is patients don't always know who is approving or denying these surgeries and what role we have in that. And we have a conversation with a patient, you're indicated for this, we may be able to help you, especially improve at your pain and stiffness, for example, if we're talking about arthroplasty. And the patient comes back and says, you offered me this, but now we can't do it. And they're almost frustrated with you when we're really on the same team. And I think it can erode that extremely important rapport between the patient and the physician. Absolutely. I think that's a critical issue. We actually had a chance earlier this year to speak with Chris Keene, 
who's the chief operating officer for the San Antonio Orthopedic Group, which I think is your member from the NOLC meeting. We presented some really incredible data that came out from there. Recently, the ASES put out an article in their journal that talked about a similar number, about 1% of all surgeries that go to prior authorization from specialists are actually ultimately denied, meaning that 99% of the time when the surgeon says, I think this is the reasonable next step or the next course, it gets approved. So we're going through a very extremely costly, both in terms of time and expense money process to ultimately get things approved. And I love what you said about ultimately, this may be actually increasing the cost of care. When we really sit down and we think about it, this additional time that's being spent, we don't really always think about the time away from work or the time away from family that these people have to go through as a result of that, where they're less effective or unable to perform to their responsibilities and duties at their offices. Let's talk a little bit about physician reimbursement. We recently did have a great conversation regarding this on our podcast. And Congresswoman Miller Meeks was on and she discussed in great detail the work that she's been doing to spearhead this. Tell me a little bit about your thoughts. You're a resident getting ready to start your practice, getting ready to go out into medicine, thinking about how you're going to hire a staff and what you're going to do. And certainly your desire to pursue this practice ultimately requires that this is a financially stable and viable environment for you to pursue, given the amount of time and money you've given up compared to some of your other classmates that you went to high school or college with that have chosen other careers. Looking at that, tell me what you think about as this being a challenge to your practice and what you think about it going forward. I think it really comes down to the old saying, you get what you pay for. And while I think we are often very focused in healthcare on cutting costs, eventually it does affect the bottom line, not to necessarily perform surgery, but the entire encounter of healthcare that we're looking to provide our patients. Are we able to not only keep the lights on, but let's talk about staffing. I've seen a lot of clinics have had issues with staffing. Obviously, COVID post-pandemic has been a huge issue with this, but any of us who are in healthcare, who are also patients, when you call the office, you want to get a not a new staff member necessarily, but reduce the turnover in the clinics, be able to pay these other ancillary staff members appropriately. That way, when they answer the phones, they can get you a great answer or even be able to answer the phones. I mean, there's nothing more frustrating than having a patient, maybe a post-op patient who is calling the clinic, but we're not able to staff the phones. So something like that, or having the medical assistants in office who've been working with us for years, who are great at their job, we want to be able to retain these people. And that just makes the practice run that much smoother and ultimately a better experience for the patient as a whole. So I think that oftentimes this is thought about just as a bunch of physicians and orthopedic surgeons who make a lot of money who want to continue doing that, but it's just not really true. The cost of running a practice is going up while reimbursement's going down and something has to give. Unfortunately, it ends up lying on the staffs a lot. That's something I've seen. And I don't think that improves healthcare for us or our patients. I completely agree with you. One of the things we always talk about is how this impacts access to care. Are you hearing from other residents or any people that you interact with? Maybe your attendings probably don't have these choices to make, but are you hearing people talk about maybe 
restricting access to Medicare patients. I only want to have one Medicare new patient per day and the rest have to be other insurance carriers. Or are you hearing from physicians who might say, we're going to drop out of Medicare altogether. We're not going to be seeing those patients anymore. We'll no longer be in the Medicare network. I haven't seen that personally, but I've certainly heard it again, going to meetings. And I think that this is a huge concern when we talk about medical cherry picking. We don't want people to cherry pick based on the payer type and that ultimately affect access or quality of care for these patients. And I think that a lot of these things are short-sighted in terms of trying to reduce costs in the short term, but again, ending up having long-term consequences down the road. The other thing I've noticed, if we take it back to when you began as an intern to now, five years later, and if I look at the statistics revolving around the percentage of people graduating from residencies who are joining large vertically integrated networks, whether that's a healthcare system that owns the physician practice, or it's an insurance company that vertically integrates and owns a physician practice and sometimes owns the surgery centers or the facilities as well. Are you seeing more of a shift that way? Because we're certainly seeing it in the numbers. And do you think that Medicare payment reform or the lack thereof is leading to more people saying, I just don't know how I can make it from a business standpoint. I'm going to have to rely upon these other large organizations and entities to run my practice. It's a great question. I certainly think it affects the confidence of someone right now at the end of residency or in fellowship, feeling like they can definitely stay away from one of those models. And I think that unfortunately, not all of us want to take that financial risk, which is now perceived to be. I'm going to say it's easier to somewhat fall in line with one of these as opposed to it is unless you have a large, well-established group in your area already. And one of the things we know that happens when those vertical consolidations and integrations occur is that the cost of care significantly increases without an increase in quality. In fact, a recent article came out today stating that quality likely decreases as some of these large corporate entities own physicians, which is not terribly surprising as things become more focused on the numbers and less on patient care. The last thing you mentioned was safety in the workplace. And I think that this really comes true at the large academic institutions like where you're training, as well as in large healthcare systems. We're seeing an increase in physicians and staff at hospitals, every type of staff from nurses to anybody who works at the facility being threatened or being worried about going to work. How have you seen that play out? as far as how staff and physicians are thinking when they come to work, knowing of the potential risks and the violence and the increased dialogue that patients are having that is certainly much more aggressive than it was when I started over 10 years ago. I think I speak for all of us when I say when we are at work and getting ready to go to work, we want to be focused solely on our patients and providing the best care we can. We don't want to be looking in the news and seeing another headline of one of our colleagues being a victim of workplace violence. And I think now, unfortunately, what happens are challenging conversations that are going to happen between us and our patients. There's now that added factor of 
intimidation or concern, could this escalate? If this escalates, how do we handle it? And I think that takes away again from the rapport and the patient-physician relationship. And I also think it takes our focus away from what we all want to be doing, and that's focusing on patient care. I think what's really big and a lot of these we're fighting for also, I think we all just want this to be deterred. We don't want to actually have to have there be any repercussions for someone. We just want a deterrent that makes it so it's not occurring and everyone can feel safe. This is a place that we feel safe, our staff feel safe, and patients feel safe all at the same time. I think when you look at other industries that are known for safety, such as airlines, they have similar laws in place. And I think that helps you focus on improving safety and efficiency in that workplace. The SAVE Act, I think, was the bill that's currently out there that's been out in the last Congress and being reintroduced in this Congress. Really, the focus being on ensuring that people who work in healthcare facilities are treated the same as when you walk onto an airline, as you mentioned. You walk onto an airplane and you threaten someone, people are going to show up and arrest you. And there's an increased cost in terms of how bad the charges might be, or it elevates and creates it, goes maybe from one level of a misdemeanor to another, or even becomes a felony as a result of the things that are said, threatened or actual violence that occurs. Have you seen or have you been touched by with through any of your colleagues that you trained with any workplace violence in your career, your short career so far? Have you seen it at the place you've worked or friends that you went to school with? Have they experienced it? I'm very fortunate that I haven't. But I think when talking about this, it's really key if you look at the SAVE Act, it's not just a penalty for assaulting, it's also for intimidation. And this is something I definitely can speak to. Like I said, I think it's inevitable to an extent that we are going to have unhappy patients. But I think we can all agree that there is definitely a line that is crossed between working through possibly a postoperative complication and then intimidation in one way or another from a patient. And that I have seen. And I think that we need to get back to a place where when those happen, whether it's a complication or someone's upset about something about their care, that we don't feel that it's going to escalate any further. And we know that we can talk this person down, use de-escalation methods to get back on track and get this patient to where we want them to be. I completely agree. And certainly it's unfortunate, but we now have to train my staff and then many other clinics are like that as well, where we're talking about de-escalation techniques. We're discussing how to identify people who might be more likely to become threatening or utilize violence. And we have plans in place. We have cameras set up when we never used to have that set up. So it certainly changed the way we practice medicine and unfortunately has created somewhat of a barrier between us and our patients that I think through legislation, we can help to break down. So we talked about three really important topics. Happy to discuss other ones. One thing that did come to mind, I wanted to bring up with you one time is as it relates to physician reimbursement, one direction that we've talked about on this podcast that we've gone towards is this concept of value-based care as an alternative to fee-for-service or as one thing that might help reduce costs and help make this transition a little bit easier. What have you seen and what are your thoughts going into practice now looking at total joints, which is probably going to be one of the areas 
that we'll see some of the first changes with value-based care, certainly saw the first bundles within healthcare. What are your thoughts on value-based care? Where do you see that going? How do you see that impacting your practice? I really like the idea of value-based care. I think that like any iteration of something new, as we get further from the first version, it's always going to continue getting better as we can work out kind of the problems with it. And total joints and arthroplasty does seem to be something that usually is inundated with this first. I think that we are uniquely positioned as orthopedic surgeons and the ones actually providing care to know where the best places are to achieve the highest value without sacrificing outcomes. I feel like that encapsulates my thoughts the most. I think we have seen, unfortunately, situations where a hospital administrator will decide this is a good place to cut costs. You show up to work and one of the materials you like to use or a device that you're very accustomed with has now been taken from you. And if your opinion were taken into account, you would have been able to make a much better cost saving option without sacrificing the outcome for the patient. So that's where I think our specific niche and role is here is because we have the best knowledge set of where we can use value-based decisions to optimize outcomes at the same time. Perfectly said. <laughs> Perfectly said. Essentially, we are in the right position. We are the most well-trained people in musculoskeletal health. And that goes everything from what you talked about in the operating room, but all the way down to the decision about when to order imaging, what imaging to order, when to do physical therapy, when not to do physical therapy. As you said earlier, when we talked about total knee replacements and getting physical therapy that may not help this patient, this patient needs to go straight to the operating room. This one needs longer amounts of physical therapy. This one doesn't even need physical therapy, needs one training exercise and go home. And so we are in that best position to provide the value that the system needs if we are able to take on an increased risk for those decisions that we make. Well, thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. It's great to get your perspective. Certainly everything I do, and I think I speak for everyone who is ahead of you, we're doing this for the next generation. We're trying to ensure that both the next generation of patients and the next generation of physicians have a healthcare system that they can embrace that they believe is the best in the world and that provides the highest quality care and highest value of care. So I appreciate your involvement to ensure that both your peers and the peers that come behind you are able to have this excellent healthcare system that I inherited from the people ahead of me. So thank you for your time. I very much look forward to continuing to work with you through your involvement in our committees and look forward to having these further conversations at NOLC and other meetings down the road. Yeah, thank you for having me. Kevin, I certainly hope to see you in San Francisco at our annual meeting this February, right after the Super Bowl. Everybody can fly in. We're gonna have a great event for residents where the Office of Government Relations staff and many of our other people involved in the Political Action Committee will be there and we're gonna have an event just for residents and I can't wait to see you and hopefully anyone listening into this podcast also joins us that evening for our event. Yeah, and I would just encourage all residents, if you are interested, this is a great opportunity to 
get your foot in the door. And if you have any questions about advocacy, myself or any of the rest of the staff would be happy to answer them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the AAOS Advocacy Podcast, part of the Bonebeat Orthopedic Podcast channel with production and sound design by Mission Based Media. If you like what you heard today, please consider offering a rating or review and sharing the podcast with your colleagues. You can learn more information about this topic and other AAOS advocacy efforts by visiting aaos.org forward slash the Bonebeat advocacy.